and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Michael Smith, Assistant Professor of Law at St. Mary's University School of Law. My guest today is Quinn Yergain, an Assistant Professor of Law at Widener University Commonwealth Law School. Quinn, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm very excited to speak with you about your forthcoming article, Litigating Trans Rights in the States, which is forthcoming in Volume 85 of the Ohio State Law Journal. I loved reading the article, uh, and I'm so happy to speak with you about it today. Well, I'm so glad to have an opportunity to talk with you about it. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I do some work in overlapping policy spaces, work on overlapping issues. I think the article is timely. I think it's crucial. And so when I got the opportunity to guest host this episode, your article was the immediate first uh, thing that came to mind. And I'm so happy you uh, agreed to come on the podcast. I'm excited to get into the meat of the article, the arguments. Uh, but first, I was hoping you could set the stage for us and tell us why it is, uh, what it is you're writing about broadly and why it is you're writing about this. Yeah. So one of the things that I've noticed in the last few years is that, you know, states have obviously been passing a lot of laws that affect the trans community generally, um, whether it's restrictions on medical care, um, primarily for youth trans people, but also increasingly for adults as well, limiting access to school sports, um, limiting access to restrooms, in some case, um, forcing uh, students to go by the names and the pronouns that, that uh, align with their assigned gender. Um, and these laws have been challenged in lawsuits for the last few years. But the vast majority of these lawsuits have taken place in federal court on federal constitutional grounds, um, which struck me as, as kind of an odd choice, um, given that the Supreme Court of the United States seems to be in in rights contracting mode at this exact moment and not rights expanding mode, um, as well as the fact that any, any positive decision here is going to require some landmark watershed decision involving U.S. constitutional law. And I was wondering in that, you know, where are the state constitutional arguments? Where are the state courts in this, given how incredibly successful litigants have been able to, to be in the past in using state constitutional arguments to strike down, um, you know, abortion bans, uh, other abortion regulations, same-sex marriage bans, bans on sodomy, stuff like that in the past. And I was kind of waiting for somebody else to write this article, if I'm being honest. Um, and nobody really did. And so over the summer, I wrote a piece for the Brennan Center's state court report that articulated this argument at a very, very high level. Basically, state constitutions exist. Here are some rights in state constitutions that litigants might be able to use. They should definitely use these um, rather than re relying exclusively on federal constitutional arguments. And what took you from writing the Brennan Center article to writing this article? I think it was probably, you know, the the very positive feedback that that article got. Um you know, I, I was incredibly flattered by some of the positive responses that people got um, by how well it was shared, how well it was received. Um, and I decided that, OK, you know, writing for the state court report is a fantastic experience. It allows me to get my scholarship out to um, sometimes less of a formal legal academic audience. Um, but I also wanted to be able to speak to people in the academy and the courts um, and possible lawyers for some of these cases. And so I decided that, you know, it would be entirely possible and, and probably a good idea to take the basic framework of that, explore it a little bit more, treat it less as sort of an abstraction. Um, the piece for the Brennan Center focused on 
here are classes of arguments that could be raised without reference to specific states um, that didn't trace the evolution of some of these provisions, that didn't um, rely on case studies from past cases. And so I figured if I'm going to make this argument, um, I need to expand it a little bit more. And so um, that occupied the last uh, the last weeks of my summer. Well, I think it was uh, several weeks were uh, well spent. Um, and from there, I guess I was wondering, could you uh, briefly summarize the main argument you're making in this uh, new uh, expanded version of uh, that that point? I think if I had to distill the, the entire argument to a single sentence, it's state constitutions matter and we should be using them. Um, the basic idea here is that you know, I don't think anybody knows or can predict with any confidence how federal litigation over anti-trans legislation is going to go. Um, as I mentioned, and as courts have acknowledged, if the U.S. Supreme Court were to strike down any of these bans on any possible ground, it would have to dramatically expand the scope of what is protected by the U.S. Constitution and what is prohibited under the U.S. Constitution. Um, the main argument that's being made in challenging these, these bans at the federal level is that they are impermissible sex-based classifications um, and that anti-trans discrimination is a form of sex-based discrimination. Uh, sometimes these litigants have been seeking to establish gender identity as a protected class, um, subject to some level of heightened scrutiny. Then courts have been a little bit cautious about doing that, but some have. Um, in the alternative, some of them have relied on arguments that this violates the right to privacy, but after jobs, I don't think anybody really knows what the right to privacy means at the federal level. Um, and so all of these arguments are being raised, and on pretty much every single one of those grounds, state constitutions provide a, an unequivocally stronger base of arguments for litigants to potentially rely on, literally on every single one of them. Um, most states, or at least many states, have equal protection clauses that extend broader than the federal equal protection clause does. Many states have expressed rights to privacy in their constitutions, or if they don't, they have implied rights to privacy in their constitutions that have been interpreted um, more expansively than what the U.S. Supreme Court has, has held. Um, even before Dobbs, even under um, the Roe framework, Casey, all the cases that have interpreted the right to privacy, many state courts have been able to go further than that. Um, and then state constitutions also create or, or have a, a host of other rights that some of which are very unexplored, um, like the right to healthcare freedom in a handful of states. Um, but there's plenty of arguments that could be relied on at the state level to challenge some of these bans. And though there are some cases, they're certainly not being litigated in state court with the same volume and the same intensity that they are in federal court. And to me, that's a, a strategic misstep. Um, there's value in state court litigation, even if you win it in federal court, even if there's ongoing federal litigation. And so that sort of you know narrow focus on getting the Supreme Court to ultimately strike these down, relying on the federal constitution seems like a pretty grievous error um, that is eventually going to have to, to result in some sort of recalibration down the line. I basically argue, why, why litigate this on state constitutional law grounds, which it will be, I think, eventually in five years or 10 years when we could be doing that literally right now in this moment? Yeah, I mean, are state constitutional challenges mutually exclusive from federal constitutional challenges? Yes. Yeah, so litigation on both grounds can take place at the same 
same time. Um, this could happen in a couple different ways. One of them is the U.S. constitutional grounds could be raised along with state constitutional grounds in state court. Um, and, you know, the, the state courts could have the opportunity to interpret the state constitution as well as the U.S. Constitution. In practice, this doesn't happen as often as we might think it does. Obviously, state courts have the ability to do that. Um, but oftentimes what you'll see is if they're presented with state and U.S. constitutional grounds, sometimes they'll say, well, we can decide this on U.S. constitutional grounds. We don't have to reach the state constitutional arguments. Um, you obviously would have a, a harder time being able to raise state constitutional arguments in federal court, but you could certainly do that as well. Um, I, but you, I think the likeliest or the the strategically wisest thing to do in a case like this is have state litigation on one side, have federal litigation on the other side, and raise both claims to the same piece of legislation at the same time. I guess that answer sort of prompts just a thought, um, which may be a bit of a counter argument. I guess what would you say to the potential objection that um, a successful state constitutional challenge may succeed uh, within the jurisdictional boundaries of one particular state, uh, that state's constitution, but a federal constitutional challenge, if successful, could have far wider ranging positive impacts if successful. Oh, I totally agree. I definitely don't think that federal litigation should be, you know, cast by the wayside or put on the back burner or anything like that. I think the goal for trans advocates in a situation like this has to be winning at the U.S. Supreme Court. That has to be the ultimate goal here. But even if that happens, there's still going to be cracks that need to be filled. Um, just because the U.S. Supreme Court recognizes, for example, that some anti-trans laws are unconstitutional in some, circumstance, in some circumstances doesn't mean that all of these regulations and restrictions will be unconstitutional. Just as even under the expansive framework of Roe didn't mean that all abortion regulations were unconstitutional. Um, there are regulations, there are restrictions, there will be discrimination that would be entirely permissible. State courts allow for litigants to fill the cracks, to do what the U.S. Supreme Court is unwilling to do. Um, and that's assuming that the Supreme Court even steps in on the side of trans advocates in the first place. Um, if the Supreme Court ultimately holds that no sex-based discrimination under the Equal Protection Clause does not include trans-based discrimination, um, and no gender identity is not a protected class subject to heightened scrutiny, then okay, for, for the time being anyway, federal litigation is not going to be successful on those grounds. Um, and so state courts are going to need to, to be available as an option anyway. Um, all roads ultimately lead to continuing to pursue this in state court, either because litigants want to challenge things that the U.S. Supreme Court has said are entirely constitutional or because they fail at the U.S. Supreme Court and they have to rely on, on state courts to go further. Um, you know, thinking about sort of how gay rights have been litigated in the past provides an excellent example of this. Um, you know, bans on quote-unquote sodomy, which were used to prosecute gay people for having sex, um, that was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court um, in Bowers v. Hardwick in the 1980s. Um, but just because the Supreme Court said that's constitutional or it's not unconstitutional doesn't mean that 
um, advocates could not use state constitutions to make the exact same arguments in state court. And they did, and they were successful in a surprising number of states um, in getting a lot of these sodomy bans struck down, including the one that was at issue in Georgia. Uh, the Georgia Supreme Court ultimately struck that down itself. Um, and then we had the U.S. Supreme Court's reversal in Lawrence v. Texas. Um, but it was, I think, in part sort of the momentum of relying on the state court litigation that allowed that to happen. Um, that is one of the big benefits of litigating in state court is that you produce this incredibly persuasive body of case law that other state courts are able to rely on in interpreting their own provisions. Um, state constitutions borrow from each other with some frequency. Um, state courts think about what each other is doing, even if they're not formally bound by the decisions that they make. Um, and so producing case law that is ultimately supportive of striking these laws down in one state, two states can inform what's going on in litigation taking place in other states altogether. That's That's been my experience in my limited time in state constitutional law and state constitutional interpretation as well. I think that's, an, that's a fantastic point. Uh, one thing that I really like about your article, and you got into it briefly in this answer, but that I might want to expand on a little bit more, is you don't come into this just from the the sort of the hypothetical, the looking forward and sort of just the, the constitutional provision perspective. You provide a lot of historical examples of these trends, this sort of litigation in the past. You discussed uh, sort of the uh, the path from Bowers v. Hardwick to Lawrence versus Texas and all of the sort of unrecognized work that was happening on the state level there. Are there any other sort of standout examples that you'd like to give of how state constitutional litigation has succeeded in this way uh, and led to this sort of change in the past? I think that there are, there are so many examples that, that can be drawn upon, either in the case of the Supreme Court not recognizing some right or some invocation of a right in a specific circumstance, or recognizing it and not going as far as litigants want. Um, abortion has always been one of those areas. It's obviously incredibly salient right now, but uh, a lot of state constitutions have been interpreted to provide more robust protections than the federal constitution did before Dobbs. Um, and abortion regulations that would have been entirely permissible under Roe, Casey, um, and their progeny uh, have been struck down in state courts, um, relying on more expansive protections on state constitutions. Another really great example is the idea that um, that the, the states are not required just because there is this right to abortion or was this right to abortion to pay for medically necessary abortions um, through Medicaid. Um, the Supreme Court has said that, um, and that sort of reflected maybe a ceiling on what the, the court was willing to recognize as, as a violation of the right to abortion. And so litigants turned to state courts, and they were able to, first off, get state courts to recognize an independent state constitutional right to abortion in some cases. But second, even in states that didn't recognize that, they interpreted their equality provisions, either equal protection or equal rights, um, to require basically that states cover medically necessary abortions through Medicaid, um, and that it's a viol it, it is sex-based discrimination or gender-based discrimination to not do that. Um, another example of relying on separate text in state constitutions, separate interpretations to go where the U.S. Supreme Court wouldn't. Um, and gay marriage is, I think, another super relevant, maybe not as salient now example, where you know, litigants held off on litigating that in federal courts for a while, I think, because they were a little uncertain um, that 
they would be victorious there. Um, and so litigation happened in the states, really from the early 1990s through the mid-2010s. Um, we were litigating gay marriage bans in state court. And a lot of these arguments were ultimately successful. Um, you know, the first state to recognize marriage equality, Massachusetts, did so as the result of its Supreme Judicial Court's decision in 2003. Um, and that was, you know, in the late 2000s, obviously an incredibly controversial thing to, to be happening in the first place. Um, you know, the California Supreme Court recognized gay marriage just months before um, the electorate voted to ban gay marriage in a constitutional amendment, um, you know, after the Iowa Supreme Court recognized a right to uh, marriage equality under the state constitution, voters um, ousted from office, most of the justices who participated in that decision. So these were controversial decisions, but state courts were willing to step up in this moment, recognize that their state constitutions provided a more expansive scope of rights than um, the federal constitution did, um, and allowed litigants to rely on this totally independent text to litigate claims that either they weren't ready to make in federal court or that maybe wouldn't have succeeded in federal court at that point. Yeah, no, I was I was in Iowa uh, when Barnaby Bryan was handed down and was voting in the immediate, uh, the election that followed in the aftermath. And um, I think that probably maybe the entire uh, majority of that uh, court would have been ousted if I think Iowa law required only that three could come up at a time for potential recall. So very interesting times there. Um, I guess um, shifting gears then to, so I think you provide a lot of these great examples. I think a lot of it shows sort of the progress that can be made, how these provisions can be operationalized. You do take pains in the article to point out though, you know, that, you know, gay rights aren't necessarily trans rights and not all of this may necessarily apply. And I think you do a good job of you know, recognizing that there may still be a distinction. I guess I want to sort of posit then, let's take a hypothetical, well, in many states, not a hypothetical ban, say on gender affirming healthcare uh, for, for youths. Um, how might the, what sort of state constitutional provisions have you come across in your research and that you discuss in the article might be sort of used to strike back or to challenge a, a state law like this? I think the two best grounds that, that I think litigants can most reliably rely on are going to be a more expansive scope of an equality-based provision and then a right to privacy. But all state constitutions are unique in some form. And so, you know, most of them contain rights that others don't. So there are going to be a lot of state-specific arguments as well. Um, so starting with equality provisions, for example, I say equality provisions because not all state constitutions contain an equal protection analog per se. Um, to some extent, it's, it's reductionist to think of it that way, to expect, oh, the federal constitution says something. Therefore, there must be an analog in the state constitution. Um, and state courts have long interpreted uh, seemingly totally unrelated provisions to be sort of their analog of the Equal Protection Clause. Um, but then separately, there are also state-level equal rights amendments. Um, the U.S. Constitution notably and obviously does not contain the Equal Rights Amendment um, banning discrimination on the basis of sex or gender. Um, but many state constitutions do, and they have interpreted or they have uh, applied strict scrutiny in many cases to gender-based discrimination rather than intermediate scrutiny, which the U.S. Supreme Court does. Um, some have applied even extra super strict scrutiny to reviewing gender-based discrimination, where they view it as almost never acceptable. Um, so 
if a state constitution has anything like that, or a state court has interpreted its equal protection clause to expressly in, or to impliedly include um, bans on uh, sex or gender-based discrimination, that's a great place to start as well. Um, but litigants should also note that they are probably going to be able to litigate um, these claims as violating um you know, their rights as members of a protected class that the state court just hasn't recognized yet. Um, you know, federal courts have done this in a lot of this trans litigation to some extent, recognizing gender identity um, as a protected class that I think I'm very skeptical that the U.S. Supreme Court will embrace that logic. Um, but state courts seem like they might be more inclined to do so. Um, during the gay marriage litigation in the states, a fair number of states recognized sexual orientation as a protected class. Um, rather than relying on the analogy of gender-based discrimination or sex-based discrimination, they actually recognized, you know, sexual orientation itself as a protected class. Um, so I, I think that it's entirely possible that state courts would be willing to do so in this case as well. Um, and then there's also states that have totally different equal protection jurisprudence um, altogether. Um, you know, the the idea of the three separate tiers of scrutiny doesn't always translate into the states. Um, Alaska and New Jersey notably have systems that are a little bit more custom fit. Um, you know, Alaska uses what its Supreme Court described as a sliding scale analysis that doesn't categorize things into these separate tiers, uh, but instead just sort of considers okay, what, what is the law? How is it discriminating and how does it affect people? Um, and what is the strength of the government's interest in a case like this? Um, there are minor variations among the states too. Um, Idaho's Supreme Court uses a means focus test instead of intermediate scrutiny. New Mexico's Supreme Court has expressly said that it uses a, a um, tougher version of rational basis review. A lot of state courts do something similar, even if they're not expressly saying so. So equal protection jurisprudence, equality jurisprudence looks very different at the states sometimes. Um, and so that's an incredibly strong basis for challenging a lot of these laws. Um, separately, a fair number of state courts or state constitutions include rights to privacy expressly in their constitutions. Um, you know, these rights to privacy could come up in the context of some sort of thing akin to the Fourth Amendment, where we're restricting, um, you know, unreasonable searches and seizures because we have this right to privacy in our documents and our, our persons and our homes, etc. Um, or it might be something that exists totally independent of that concept. Um, some of these provisions were adopted in the aftermath of Roe, and state Supreme Courts have interpreted them as conferring some sort of separate protection for um, a right to privacy in the context in which that was raised in Roe and its progeny, um, protecting a right to bodily autonomy that includes a right to abortion. Um, these rights quite naturally extend to the trans context, where if we're talking about a ban on medical care, um, that's, you know, it's in many ways, it's substantively different than the right to an abortion. But in other ways, it really isn't. It relates to bodily integrity in a really, really fundamental way. Um, and so I think that the analogy there works pretty well. Um, and in many other states, you know, the constitutions don't contain an express right to privacy, but the state courts have found an implied right to privacy that in most cases is at least as expansive as the federal right to privacy was before Dobbs. Um, that's not true in every single state. Missouri's Supreme Court has noted expressly that whatever the scope of its right to privacy is, it is not as expansive as the federal constitution, um, which was kind of an academic point at the time that it said that, but now is actually something that it will have to determine 
and what that means um, in, in some litigation at some point. So there's a lot of options. And I also don't want to dismiss um, the very weird and very idiosyncratic rights that exist in many state constitutions. Um, in the years following the Affordable Care Act, um, many states, or at least a handful of states, adopted um, health care freedom amendments, which at a very high level granted people some right to purchase health care of their choice through a provider of their choice. Um, Wyoming, the Wyoming Constitution's health care freedom amendment guarantees each person a right to make their own health care decisions. Um, I wrote a piece for Bolts earlier this year that talked about how in Ohio and Wyoming, these provisions were being used to challenge abortion bans. Um, and a state court judge in Wyoming actually relied on its healthcare freedom amendment in part to strike down um, the state's abortion ban. So I think that those provisions also speak to the state constitution's protection of bodily autonomy um, and could be used to, to support some of these uh, claims as well. And then there's a, a host of other rights, some of which are expressed in state constitutions, some of which are implied. Um, one thing that I've seen litigated uh, to some extent in, in state court litigation in Missouri and Texas in particular is that um, their state constitutions include some right to make a living and to earn the fruits of your labor. Um, I am skeptical about relying on some sort of um, substantive economic due process kind of, you know, Lochner type argument to some extent too much. Um, but those exist and, and they can be used. Um, a lot of state constitutions have been interpreted to provide parents with some rights to control the upbringing of their children. Again, I am wary about relying on that too, too much, given how much uh, the parental rights movement is also informing a lot of the anti-trans discriminations taking place. But those claims are being made, too. Um, at the end of the day, I think that the, the general prescription that I'm writing is here, here are some provisions that might be of some utility in individual state court litigation. But at the end of the day, look at your state constitution, see what rights exist and how the court has interpreted them, um, and maybe how it hasn't interpreted them. Argue for a different interpretation that the court has never adopted before, um, because state constitutions are, at least with respect to rights, tragically under litigated. A court can't take up an argument until a, litigate, a litigant brings it. So um, excellent point, I think. And I think it's, uh, I'm, I hope uh, that your piece serves as a call to action for folks who are operating on this level and who are trying to make all the arguments they can uh, in situations like this. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit now, go a little bit more broadly, a little bit beyond the article, but still sticking with the broader subject matter, and ask you um, what draws you in your scholarship and your writing? Because I've, I've read some of your other work. You've referenced some of your other work. Um, you write a lot and focus a lot on state constitutional law. Um, and I guess what prompted your interest and um, what draws you to state constitutional law rather than what's, I think, very typical in the field of constitutional law, federal constitutional questions and discussions? At some point in law school, I'm not sure when exactly it was, I decided that I wanted to go into academia. Um, and I think at that point, the plan would have been U.S. constitutional law as my area of focus and expertise. And I think if you told me at that point, that the main thing that my scholarship did was state constitutional law, I think my response would have been, oh, my God, that sounds awful. It sounds so boring. <laughs> um, 
because, you know, as a, as a Floridian in exile who's voted in a lot of elections in Florida, I know what our state constitution says. It has a lot of policy provisions. Um, I voted on a lot of those amendments. And I think my response as a voter was sometimes, I support this policy, but why is it going in the state constitution? Um, I saw state constitutions as these dry documents that really didn't confer anything that was important or significant. And that was really because I didn't know anything about them. Um, and in law school, I was I was working on an article independent of my comment that was a fairly niche question that what I really wanted for the article was to rely on some sort of broader work that commented on sort of the, the area I was focused on more generally. And I discovered that that foundation didn't exist. Um, the article that I wanted to cite did not exist. So... I decided at that moment that I was going to write it myself. Um, and so while studying for the bar exam, you know, my my moments of relief, you know, from 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. Um, were reading state constitutions and working on this article as, as a treat for myself after having studied for the day. Um, uh-huh. And I learned so much in that process. You know, I think very few people go through law school with formal education and instruction on state constitutions, but also I'll say state level research generally, I think for the most part. Um, And so I learned so much and I realized there is so much here that hasn't been written about. And that is ridiculously attractive to me. Um, You know, there's, you know, when I, when I advise students on writing their comments for, for law review and stuff like that, so many of them are interested in the U S constitution. And I, I feel that because it is very interesting. And my response is always, well, what are you going to say here that's different than what other people have said? And why is it going to be noticed? And I think that's the big problem with the U.S. Constitution. You can come up with these bespoke arguments sometimes that people haven't raised before, but you're always, always, always going to have to do this ridiculously long literature review that very carefully positions your piece. And to me, I think that one of the more interesting parts of scholarship is not necessarily making an argument, but instead doing analysis and doing research and arguing perhaps you should care about this. Um, that to me is more interesting than I'm right in this situation about my prescription for this problem, um, mostly because I don't think anybody really cares what I think the prescription is to a policy dispute. Um, but I think I, you know, I can persuade people you should care about this. And there is so much in state con law that has not been comprehensively explored. Um, There is an amazing flourishing community of state con law scholars um, that I'm really, really proud to be a part of um, that really is trying to advance this scholarship in a meaningful way that, that contributes to a lot of these questions that we're dealing with today. But, you know, to me, I think my motivation at the end of the day is I like doing things that other people haven't done before and where I get to answer questions like why, why is this the case? Why is this the law? Why is this the system that we have and how is it, how is it different? Um, To me at this point, this might be a hot take, but the U.S. Constitution is kind of boring by comparison. Um, You know, if you want to do constitutional interpretation, even if you're a textualist, I think the U.S. Constitution doesn't say much, um, but state constitutions do. Um, the words matter there a little bit more because they're longer in many cases. And that can be boring and miserable in its own way. The Alabama Constitution is the longest national or subnational constitution in the world, which isn't ideal. Um, but they say so much more. And so you can think about them more critically. And to me, it's just it's a ridiculously fun exercise of where did this provision come from? Let's trace it all the way back. 
what other states have provisions like this? How have they interpreted this? Is there a split in how this has been interpreted? And almost any question you can think of um, that a state constitution speaks to, there is a split in authority in some form. Um, and sometimes it's a very silly split, but there is a split. And to me, that is always wildly interesting. Agree completely. I also started from the federal constitutional perspective. And I agree with you. I don't think it's boring in its own right, but by comparison with so much more going on and, you know, 51 constitutions to choose from and just the breadth of provisions that are out there, it's a completely different world. And there's always something to discover. Um, on the topic of that discovery and on the topic of perhaps, um, you know, convincing or compelling people to come over to our uh, dark side of the state constitutional world. I was wondering um, if you could give some insights into, uh, from a teaching perspective, how might um, lessons or the content of state constitutional law be incorporated into other sort of constitutional law classes, you know, from constitutional law to constitutional rights to classes like criminal procedure, which I'm teaching now, which are by and large almost entirely a constitutional law course as well. Um, we're pressed for time in our classes. Uh, there's already a complex federal doctrine. Uh, how would you go about trying to incorporate some state constitutional law lessons into that sort of limited time that we have in those courses? I think that, you know, and, and I, in teaching state constitutional law this semester, I've been thinking a lot about how to effectively teach these ideas um, in limited time. And even with a full class on state con law, I've, I've obviously had to make a lot of very difficult decisions. Um, and my my ultimate recommendation, the way that I, I personally think the right way to teach state con law is that it should be integrated into a course as sort of a skills-based approach, um, where I think that state constitutions need to be situated in the federal system to some extent, where, okay, a state constitution says X, what the hell does that mean in context? Why do we care what that means? And so I think talking about some of the U.S. Supreme Court cases that have situated state constitutions, um, super important. Um, I think that courses on sort of the U.S. Constitution generally should include some discussion of Michigan v. Long, for example, and just to sort of illustrate, okay, here are what state courts can decide on their own. Here is when it implicates the U.S. Supreme Court or when you can you can appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, with that in mind, think about how these arguments could be made at the state level. Um, what provisions might we rely on? How might we know that they have a different meaning than the U.S. Constitution, for example? Um, and so I, you know, in teaching state con law myself, my goal is to teach it as a skills-based class. It's not to teach them black letter law of state constitutions because I'm not totally convinced that that exists um, as, a, as a practical matter. I think the, the best skill that you can have as a lawyer is okay, how do you find your state constitution? How do you know what it says? And how do you figure out um, if it is adopting the same kind of interpretation that the U.S. Supreme Court has adopted for a similar provision or a different one? And if it hasn't commented on it, how might you argue that it has the same or a different interpretation? Um, I think a lot of these are going to be used more by non-state entities a lot of the time, where if you are a criminal defense attorney, um, you know, and you're facing uh, prosecution in state court, you should absolutely know what your state constitution says on any sort of rights of criminal defendants and prisoners. Um, so I think it's the, it's almost, I, I guess I would say this is maybe a bigger claim that I'm, I'm positioned at this point in life to make, but I think that, that law schools have some duty to at least tell their students that state constitutions exist um, at a minimum. Um, and it could just be a brief mention in class, but I, I think that 
you know, one of the exercises that I think students find helpful sometimes is, um, okay, go find your state constitution or find a state constitution and locate whatever you think the equivalent of X provision is um, and see how it's been interpreted. I think sometimes it's just a matter of doing that. But at a minimum, I would say we need to situate state constitutions in the federal system so that students know sort of what they are and what they're doing in sort of this very confusing setup anyway. Um, one sort of uh, getting towards the the end of the time period, but I do want to follow up on that with uh, what I think is a uh, maybe a fun or p- potentially unanswerable question, which is uh, where do you see the state of state constitutional law, scholarship, and teaching in let's say fifty years, uh, assuming the the country is still around in fifty years? Uh, what do you think the state of state constitutionalism? Uh, and litigation and teaching and scholarship will be? I think it's it's kind of a, a double-edged sword to some extent. I am optimistic that the field of state constitutional scholarship and litigation will be much richer in 50 years than it is now. Um, I think that my my pessimistic reason for why that will be the case is I think that state constitutions matter right now in part because we're so polarized and there's almost just two separate countries that exist at any given moment, or three, I guess, on a, on a practical level. It's whatever the federal government is doing, whatever states want to go further, and whatever states don't want to go as far. Um, and so state constitutional, state constitutional litigation is incredibly likely to continue um, as states decide that they want to go further than the feds in some areas, and they want to try to push back and not go as far in others. Um, and so I, I think that it really will be the case that, you know, you cross state lines and your rights are dramatically different in one state as opposed to another. Um, and I don't just mean sort of your your positive rights in a, in a literal sense, but, you know, your right as a voter to control the composition of your state government, I think, will be radically different from one state to another, where in some states your vote simply will matter objectively much, much less than in others. Um now, I think that that state constitutional scholarship and instruction can help us sort of contextualize, I think, the the changes that are likely to happen, um, where if we have this sort of methodologically consistent way of interpreting state constitutions, um, which so many people have been arguing for in so many different areas, um, you know, I, I think of um, Miriam Seifter and Jessica Bullman Posen arguing that state courts need to adopt a a more methodologically consistent way of interpreting rights, for example, um, especially rights that are different than what the U.S. Constitution uh, contains. Um, I think of Jonathan Marshfield arguing that state constitutions set up radically different, or at least materially different, uh, separation of power regimes than the U.S. Constitution does, and state courts should not just be mechanically relying on U.S. constitutional separation of powers principles. Um, if we're able to develop that scholarship and we're able to persuade courts of that in a, in a meaningful way, then I think that we can get this really rich jurisprudence and this really rich scholarship um, that can you know, allow us to really engage as citizens, as voters, as legal professionals, whatever, with what's in our state constitutions. Um, and to me, that's one of the most critical parts of all of this is having people not just lawyers, not just law students, um, but people engaging with their state constitutions as a totally independent source of rights and as positioning them totally separately in relationship 
to their state government than the U.S. Constitution does in relation to the federal government, for example. That's my highest aspiration, that people care about state constitutions more. I think it'll happen inevitably. My hope is that it happens in a less um, ideologically polarized way than seems very likely at this moment. Great. Well, I I certainly hope it develops in that way, too. That's, that is a future, I think, that's worth looking forward to. Um, with the, the minute or two we have remaining, I wanted to give you a chance to highlight any um, uh, other work that you wanted to highlight right now that you have out, or to give us a preview of what might be coming, I guess, kind of what's next after litigating trans rights in the states. Well, my, my main area is institutions and structure of state constitutions and state governments. And so this was a little bit of a, a dalliance that I thought was important at this exact moment. The, the biggest thing I'm working on right now is impeachment in the states um, and how uh, it's very different than federal impeachment and it should be treated differently. And that um, my ultimate argument there is going to be that state courts should be playing a more active role in reviewing impeachment proceedings and removal proceedings um, than they have in the past. Um, and I do think that's changing right now. Um, there's a, a handful of state Supreme Court decisions or state appellate court decisions that suggest that that's changing. Um, but I think that, you know, it's 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 one of these things where it's very difficult to predict, you know, what separation of powers questions are going to be relevant in five years. Um, this is one that's relevant right now and that I'm pretty confident it's going to continue to be relevant for probably the foreseeable future, unfortunately. So that's where a lot of my excess intellectual and, you know, mental energy is is being spent right now. Coming from Texas, I want to tell you to hurry up and get that scholarship out there. We want to see what you have to say. Um, no, that's crucial. And um, no, that sounds fantastic. Um, uh, well, well, Quinn, I wanted to wrap up by thanking you again for taking the time to be here um, and taking the time to speak with me. Uh, the article, again, uh, just to give one final plug, Litigating Trans Rights in the States, forthcoming in the Ohio State Law Journal. I believe it's also currently free to download from SSRN. So Go out and find it today if you'd like. I also recommend following Quinn on Twitter at, I believe your handle is at Yeargain, uh, and you give timely updates on restrictions against gay or trans rights, state constitutional law, constitutional amendment news, so much more invaluable to stay up to date on the news in this field. Uh, Quinn, thank you again for coming. It was great speaking with you. It was fantastic to be here. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care. Constitution, it's the basis of the laws of our land.